We're getting very close now to the end of John's gospel, aren't we? So we're here, John chapter 21. Uh, We have two left after this, two left in this gospel, which makes me kind of sad because I really enjoyed it. Derek Malcolm's going to take us through our passes next week, then I'm going to finish this off in the last couple of verses in two weeks' time. So we're going to read John chapter 21. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Jesus appears to seven disciples. And I've entitled this sermon, I've changed this title about 10 times this week, but I've called it. I can't quite remember which word I put the words reward and failure in at the end. Thank you. Hardworking, faithful failures are rewarded. Thank you. I changed the last two. Ah, Yeah, let's read. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into that boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, None of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord's. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. As we explore this resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you appear to us and and would we leave from here with that same declaration this morning? It is the Lord. Bless our time together in the word we pray. Amen. So we come here to this scene of these friends fishing. What a few weeks it's been for them. Hasn't it? There's something of this picture that is worlds away from everywhere else that we've just been. This picture is worlds away from the upper room. It is worlds away from the the, the horrible things that they witnessed of our Lord Jesus. It is a world away from Calvary. It is a world away from being locked behind closed doors because they were scared. It is an idyllic scene of our friends fishing once again. Do you know, I imagine these guys were just delighted. Imagine that at this point they were just delighted to be doing something that they knew and loved. The horror of the past events are now replaced for them with this bounding sense of victory and delight because the tomb is empty. So we have this seven. 
Seven, who and of themselves, uh, are a different bunch of characters. We've got some fishermen in here. We've got Nathaniel, who by his name seems to come from some kind of royal lineage. We've got Thomas, who's the real thinker, as we've, as we've seen. A beautiful picture for us as we start of the church, of this group together, just living life together. So they're on this fishing trip. And we have before us a rather unsuccessful night's fishing, don't we? Hasn't gone very well for this band of apostles. And this event for us, and the way we're going to look at this this morning, is a living parable. Do you know, we think of parables as stories that are told by Jesus with a deeper meaning. But I think more than that, we see real parables, living parables from Jesus, where he takes events that have happened and applies a deeper meaning to them. We see it in Mark 12 when uh, Jesus and his disciples were at the temple. They're observing uh, the giving and seeing what's going on. And Jesus comments on the woman that gives just two coins. And she talks of that offering uh, as it being this uh, example on what it means to give. Similarly, we have the story of Mary and Martha, don't we? That we read into and we see this example of the one who is busy and the one who is rushing and the one that stops and sits at the feet of Jesus. And we have the first fishing miracle that we will refer to this morning in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus ends that by saying, follow me and you'll be fishers of men. So this is a living parable that, that, that through the actions has something very real to say to us as the church today. And what it teaches us is it teaches us of how the Lord relates to us as we toil in this world, as we strive in this world, as we look to be Christians and live out our faith in this world. Of course, these disciples had no idea of the role that they were playing here in this great spiritual drama that is before us. But we start then with the disciples at work, these first three verses. And unknown to them, they are this microcosm, this example of the church. This church that is riding the sea, Revelation 17, 15, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. We're given this image that, that this sea that these, these friends are on is like the world that we find ourselves in. And they're here, the, the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias, the emperor, had a house. This is the Sea of Galilee, but he had a wee, a wee place there, so it's often also called this. The first time Jesus comes and sees them ends with Jesus saying, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. There's a lot of similarities, isn't there? A lot of similarities between the first fishing miracle where Jesus calls his disciples. Both there had been a, a frustrating night of no fruit, of no catch. It had been a frustrating night for them where they hadn't reined in, pulled in anything. The same thing happens in both. Jesus commands them again, let out your nets. And in both, there is instant great success. So this picture, with the thoughts of uh, the sea as the nations, with the thoughts of these nets to be cast, and in light of these words, to be fishers of men. This is an example of them at work. What does that say to us as the church? That casting our nets are important. That fishing for men is important. And I think that's what John's trying to bring to our mind here. We see that this, this image, that evangelism, that reaching out, that seeking to save the lost is a prominent thing, should be and must be a prominent ministry in the life of the church. 
We should constantly be fishing. No matter how dark the night is, no matter how stormy the waves are, but it is the job of the believers to cast and to cast wide. We've been called by Christ, we've been justified by Christ, and now it's us that go and we we take that message out there. Just as Jesus had done with Mary Magdalene, just as he had done with his disciples, you know me, you've heard me, go and share. Go and take it out there. And with that comes this emphasis that John 21 suggests to us, this emphasis on hard work. Fishing for both men and for food is exhausting. It is time-consuming. Service in the life of the church, reaching out to those that we know and love, it is exhausting. It is time-consuming. Taking the gospel out is hard. You know, the backdrop to this is a rubbish night's fishing. This wasn't terribly productive for them. It isn't easy for us. It isn't easy for us to go and we can cast net after net after net, but there is no promise that anybody would be saved. Through that, his disciples are, most of them, pro-fishermen. These are guys that know what they do. They pay careful attention. They pay careful attention to the water, to the weather, to their equipment, to everything that is round about them. They know what they're doing. Yet they caught nothing. So there is this, this, this picture here of fishing, of reaching out, of evangelism that comes with hard work. And the other thing that I think this whole picture shows us is dependence. It was Jesus that told them, and John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's easy, isn't it, to do things on our own. It's easy for us to not look for direction from God first. But Jesus says this will amount to nothing. I've been in some form of ministry for almost 10 years now, um, which feels quite scary. And I've learned some things along the way. And one of the things I've learned is that I'm nowhere near as good as I think I am. And I learned that I am nowhere near as, as capable as I might hope I might possibly be. And the reason I think that is because I will continually try and do things on my own. I don't know about you, maybe, maybe prayer is your nature. Maybe that's what you do. And in everything, naturally, you just pray, you pray, you take it to the Lord, it's there. Man, it's been hard graft for me. It's not been easy because it's not my natural response. My natural response is... There's a challenge, there's a task, there's something that needs done. Let's go, let's get it done. We'll graft Jesus in somewhere, but no. We have to fight against that heart. Prayer isn't the natural instinct of a human, is it? Our human nature says, I can do this, let's go. But we have to work hard. We have to work hard prioritizing that, that silence, that reflection, that meditation, We can witness, we can be busy, and we can achieve absolutely nothing. You can donate hundreds of hours of service to the Lord, to the church, and achieve nothing. I can preach for weeks, months, years on end, and it can amount to nothing. So the church at work, three things, of course, it's not exclusive. Evangelism, hard work, dependence. That's the work of the church. I'm alive. Jesus is alive. You've received me. You've seen me. You've believed me. You've known me. Now go. Go and tell. And I'm not going to leave you on your own to do it. I'm going to send my spirit with you. Go. And there's a lesson in this for us because this is the work that's been given to us. Verses 4 to 6. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. The night is passing. The morning is coming. If you've ever stayed on the Sea of Galilee, you may have had a little balcony and had a coffee and you watched the sunrise uh, from the south side of Syria, just south of Damascus, and it's stunning. It raises over the, the bottom of the hills, the Golan Heights, and it's stunning. And unknown to them, Jesus is watching them. They don't recognize him. Maybe it's the heart on the water. Maybe he's hiding his appearance like he did on the road to Emmaus. Who knows? But whatever it is, they didn't recognize him. Jesus had seen everything. And his shout to them is, do you have any fish? Have you caught anything? And I think we need to give the disciples credit because they admit they had caught no fish. They caught no fish at all. Generally, a fisherman does well. You don't want to tell people because you don't want them to come and fish in your spot. You do badly. Well, nobody wants their ego bruised. Nobody wants to say, nah, it's good. Good day's fishing, mate. Good day's fishing, even though there's nothing in that boat. The disciples acknowledge their failure before Jesus, don't they? They acknowledge that we've caught nothing. There's, there's a stunning quote from Malcolm Mugridge that just so, simply says this, Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Sanctification, the, the process that we as believers are all in through the Holy Spirit growing more and more in the likeness of Christ. We could say to make holy. Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the making holy of failure. And we need look not further than one of the seven that is here. We need not look further than Peter. The great rock who rose from total failure. Remember, we picked up on that image, didn't we, of, of, of his denials, the charcoal fire, and the symbolism of that that comes. But this man was a failure. He denied the Lord Jesus three times. If there's anything that's going to be pretty horrendous for a disciple that spent time with the Lord Jesus to do, it is his denial. Failing's hard, isn't it? It bruises our ego. So much so there might be some of us thinking, failed? I've never failed. But here's the liberating fact, and I'm not going to labor this too much, but we're all failures. If the measure and if succeeding is the holiness and the perfection of God, we've all failed that. We've all failed it, spectacularly. We've all fallen so far short of the glory of God. And what our failures do is they bring us face to face with our weaknesses and with our inadequacies. And lo and behold, what happens in those weaknesses and in those inadequacies? His power is made perfect in our weakness. Second Corinthians 4 we read, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. These vessels are us, are our failures, are everything that we come with. And it is the breaking of these clay vessels, these failures, that expose the riches of God for all to see. You see, it is our failures that help us recognize just how far short of him we are and just how in need of him 
we are. Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Failure demands, doesn't it, that we assess what we've done, what we did right, what we did wrong. It helps us to discard the things that we don't need, the things that didn't work, unnecessary, and it opens us up to new ways forward. And I think we make a grave mistake when we do not admit to ourselves when we fail, whether that be in a big, broad sense as a church and ministries, whether that is the sense of there is no point in holding on to ministries that do not work, of ministries that fail to achieve what they wanted and should achieve. We shouldn't be scared to say this isn't working, this hasn't worked. Therefore, we assess and we do something different. In our own lives, there's nothing worse than being too scared to admit that we failed. These guys haven't sinned, of course, and they're fishing. So there are, there are just failures in life where we've tried, we've done our best by God, and it's not worked. But there's also sinful failure. Failure in which we fail the standards of a holy God. And I wonder if you have someone that you share your I caught nothings with. If you have somebody that you share your failures with. James 5. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Of course, our relationship with him is private, is personal, but it's not private. Our faith isn't things that are meant to be kept to ourselves. It's deeply personal, but it's not private. And often, if nobody knows your weaknesses, if nobody knows your temptations, the ways in which you sin, the patterns of sin, you're in danger. Because if nobody hears that confession, you remain alone in your sin, apart from God, who is all too aware. That's a horrible place to be. And our fellow believers, those around us, those that know and love the Lord Jesus, are a gift to us. They're a gift to help us fight sin, to endure in faith, to bring together our failure. You see, one of the beauties of this gospel is that it helps us and brings us face to face with the reality of who we are in the world that we live in. And we've got to face its truth. Christ knew fine well that his disciples hadn't caught any fish. He knew everything about them. He knows your failures. He knows mine. He knows all of them. And it's to the disciples' credit that when, he's, when they're asked about their cats, they admitted, we have caught Nothing. That's what Christ sanctified, isn't it? They admitted they had failed. The Lord spoke and something incredible happened. Don't be too depressed at this point. Please don't walk away this morning thinking Jonathan called me a failure and battled me this morning because that's not what I'm trying to do here. But we see the Lord working through this, this failure, because we see now faithfulness. We see the faithful response of despite the failure, we see the church's faithfulness, the faithfulness of these disciples, verse 6, the second half of verse 6. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Uh, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. We can make this point in four words. Jesus says, cast your net. So they cast it. I love the simplicity of this. Jesus says, do it, they do it. 
Despite their failure, their instant response was obedience, wasn't it? Cast your nets, next cast. You speak, I do. They were faithful. They were faithful to the call of the Lord Jesus upon them, which was cast your net, cast your net, and they cast. John was ready. And when he saw this net tighten with 153 fish, which I won't go into the image, but it's a miracle in itself that this net didn't tear or rip. He cries, it is the Lord. Now, Peter gets a whiff of this. Well, he hears it, it is the Lord. Peter turns his head. And as always, Peter is all action. And he wanted to see Jesus. So he put on his outer garment from fishing. He puts it on and he cannonballs into that water. You know, there's a lot of similarities with the original fish miracle, but the response of Peter is the difference. It is the crucial difference. Luke 5. His response to Jesus as he is awestruck was, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That was his reaction. And we see that in, in, in places like Isaiah, when, the, when, when Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God, the, the reaction is, is to pull back and recognize how far short we fall. Not now. Because Peter not only knew his sinfulness, but now he knew grace. Now he knew grace in all its fullness in light of the cross. So what's his response to Jesus? His response to Jesus says, I'm not worthy. His response to Jesus says, I'm coming to you. You see, first century world, you don't rush. You don't run. You don't give any outward appearance that you're, 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 you're in a hurry. It's undignified. It's not approved of. It's not right. It means you're chaotic. It means your life's not in order. You don't want to be one of those people. But Peter doesn't care. He throws himself in and off he swims. It's one of the details that makes the story of the prodigal son so wonderful, isn't it? That small detail of the father that ran to his son. Old men don't run. It's undignified. It shows chaotic lifestyles. But he ran. Father doesn't care. He doesn't care about what's expected of him in his culture. He doesn't care what others think because he wants to be in the presence of his son in that story. Peter doesn't care what other people think about him. Peter doesn't care if he breaks a social norm because he wants to be in the presence of Jesus. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He swam and he swam and he swam and he stood there. And you imagine this guy, don't you, coming out of the water, his hair matted, his beard dripping wet with this massive grin on his face, standing in front of Jesus. My reflection on that is that we spend so much time, don't we, looking for approval. The way we act, the things that we buy, the way that we speak, the masks that we put on. But what a wreck we become if we put our self-esteem in the hands of other people. If that's what we do, we're done for. Because we'll never find the approval in this world that we're looking for. You see, if our validity, if our worth is in the opinions of others, it is this constant cycle of trying to impress, trying to gain approval, and ultimately we'll not find it. That's why I love this picture. I love this picture of Peter that goes, Jesus, I'm coming. I don't care if I look daft, I want to be with Jesus. This is the man that died on the cross for my sins, so that I could spend eternity with the Father. I want to be with you. I wonder if this is your disposition towards Jesus. Is this the way you feel, the way you think about Jesus? Peter abandons everything to go and be with him. There's 153 fish in this net at the side, and Peter goes, bye, I'm going to go be with Jesus. doesn't mean that the other guys did anything wrong here. 
But Peter abandons it all because he wants to go and be with Jesus. So back to these fishermen that are left on the boat. The others come. And they are this picture of the church toiling, wrestling, serving in the, the, the world on this turbulent sea. And they found that it was Jesus that brought their increase, wasn't it? Wasn't them. And if they hadn't been faithful to his command to cast, they wouldn't have seen the blessing of 153 fish. They found that his word was sufficient. Cast your net, that's all they needed. All they needed was to be told what to do and look what happened. Just his words and the miraculous happened. As I was reading a commentary this week, I found this brilliant quote from a really old commentator that I thought was really out of place. But he said, serving Christ in our own strength, trying to do it in our own way is like going after Moby Dick with a pastry fork. I liked it. I thought it was very random, but it's, it's a good picture. Trying to go after the world something massive in our own strength with this little pastry fork. This, the disciples, this picture of the church, faithful to the call of Jesus. They saw, didn't they, the care of the risen Christ. They saw how much this Jesus loved them and cared for them and looked out for them. And we have this picture of this Jesus standing on the banks of Galilee, interested in them, caring about them, directing them, and ultimately crowning them with his blessing because they were obedient. So we move then to the reward, as if the fish wasn't enough, as if this blessing right there and then wasn't enough for them. We'll read from verse 9 to the end. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask them, who are you? Dared ask them, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the, uh, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There's something mysterious going on, I think, as we come to this passage. That, that figuratively speaking, this is a picture of eternity. This is an event that happened 2,000 years ago, but it is a picture forward for us. We have this image of this solid shoreline and this turbulent sea. We have this image, don't we, of night that is now becoming day, something that is dark, this light is now coming. We have a feast that is being prepared for shadows for us, earth and heaven. The 19th century Glaswegian Baptist, uh, Alexander McLaren said this, and I think he says this brilliantly about this passage. He says it would be blindness uh, it would be blindness not to see here a prophecy of the glad hour when Christ shall welcome to their home amidst the brightness of never-ending day the souls that have served amid the fluctuations and storms of life and seen him in its darkness and shall satisfy all their desires with the bread of heaven. It's a beautiful picture. 
these friends that have toiled, these friends who have worked, who have seen blessing, the rewards for their struggles at sea, breakfast with Jesus, the reward for the struggle of God's people through the ages in this world, eternity with Jesus. So we serve. We serve and we do our bit and we carry on serving, loving, hopefully growing in our obedience to Jesus, growing in our character to be more and more like him. And in this, we are to focus here on this eternal shore, the ever-increasing light, the table that is prepared for us. I think there's some value here that says our works are of eternal importance. They don't save us, but he's encouraging his disciples to bring some of their fish. He already had fish and bread. We know that Jesus could think, Jesus could say, and just the, fish, the feast is there, but he doesn't. He says, bring some of your feast. He's saying what you have to bring matters to them. He didn't need what they had to give. He could have had perfect fish, better fish. He could have had whatever he wanted. But instead he sends, says to them, bring some of what you have, because I want what you have. I want what you have done in my honor, in my service. Bring it. Why? Because our works are of eternal consequences. They are of importance. Works endure. What we do in the name of Christ endures. Some things we will see. Fruit we may see. Fruit we may never see. And from that, they knew it was the Lord. This could be nobody else. It is the Lord. Paul gives us a wonderful picture in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Not I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There is this idea that to know Christ is our reward. To know him and grow in our knowledge of him is our reward here on earth. To know him, to be closer to him, that is our reward. And I think all of John can be summed up here in simply saying that there is communion with Christ despite your failures. In the face of your failures. Because that's what we have here. So, to finish off, hardworking, faithful, failures, rewarded. If we're believers, if we know and love the Lord Jesus, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We're all sailing the same waters. Our reality is here, Hamilton 2023, and all of us in the boat are to be involved in the casting and the recasting of the nets. And as the disciples were and we are as Christ followers, we are called to be honest about what is happening in our lives and our failures. And as believers, some of the most life-giving words we'll ever know is, I've got nothing. Christianity from Golgotha onwards is the sanctification of failure. We've seen the last supper and now we see the last breakfast. We see in this, don't we, Jesus' attitude to doubters with Thomas present. 
with deniers, with Peter present, we see the Lord Jesus disposition, his position towards those like that. Come and eat. You're welcome here. Come and eat. What does that mean for you? One of the worst lies you can ever believe is that you have sinned too far, too much for the glory of God. That somehow you are too bad. That you have removed yourself so far away from the hand of God that there is nothing that can save you. The denier three times is pretty high on the list of those who have fallen short. Jesus forgives, and he doesn't just forgive, I won't steal next week's passage, but he doesn't just forgive Peter, does he? Oh, he commissions, he sends. Let's eat. If there is anything you have done or are doing that you think cannot be forgiven, do not listen to that lie. I think this story shows us that you can be forgiven because here we have these, this group of sinners, this doubter, this denier, here present, invited by the Lord Jesus. And we have this declaration, it is the Lord. So for us in the darkness, would we profess it is the Lord? In our failures, would we profess it is the Lord? When the nets are empty, would we profess it is the Lord? And when the nets are full, would we profess it is the Lord? In everything, in all of life, would we profess it is the Lord? And through that, would we rest and would we depend more and more on him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this picture of the church that we are given here. This church working tirelessly to serve you. And Lord, would we recognize that on our own there is but nothing we can do. Would you teach us dependence, Lord, more and more? Would you teach us dependence on you when the nets are full, when the nets are empty, when it's night, when it's day, when there's storms, when it's plain sailing? And would the affirmation of our life be it is the Lord? We thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness. Help us this week, Lord, to depend more and more upon you. Amen.